You're listening to Take as Directed, a podcast on global health policy and the news, events, issues, and the people it affects. The problem is the world is in a shortage of vaccines. power and strength in women is the role this that maternal child and fear health and nutrition is what drives this disease and, t- and keeps it in the dark. I'm Steve Morrison, director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations led either by me or by my colleagues, Sarah Allender, Janet Fleischman, and Nellie Bristol, who serve as recurring hosts. We interview leaders fighting against some of the biggest public health challenges of our time. Hello, welcome to the Take is Directed podcast. My name is Janet Fleischman. I'm a senior associate with the Global Health Policy Center here at CSIS. And in today's episode, we are delighted to be joined by Dr. Mark Dybel, the faculty co-director of the Center for Global Health and Quality and a professor in the Department of Medicine at Georgetown University Medical Center. Many of you know Mark from his work on HIV, most recently as the executive director of the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB, and Malaria and before that as the U.S. Global AIDS Coordinator for PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. So welcome, Mark, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's nice to be back at CSIS. You've had a long career in public health. Too long. (laughs) It's taken you around the world from Washington to Chicago to San Francisco and many, many countries in between. 110 of them. 110. Wow. So can you tell us how you first got involved with public health and HIV? Oh, HIV was reading about the global epidemic when I was in college and changing my career path from philosophy or theology to uh, medicine. And that was in the early 80s when everyone was dying and first became an activist and then went into medicine and San Francisco too. The public health piece of it was we were doing work in Africa, but it was clinical research to try to improve antiretroviral therapy and see how we could distribute it more effectively in Africa before really most people were. But I was doing that from the National Institute of Health. When President Bush decided he wanted to do something big on HIV, he turned to Tony Fauci. Of course, everyone always turns to Tony Fauci. (laughs) And I was both running a section of Tony's lab, but we were doing our work in Africa together. So I ended up getting sent down to work with the White House to help develop the implementation plan. Tony and I were the only non-White House people involved. There were eight of us, and we developed the plan together that President Bush adopted. And then when it was adopted, they basically said, now get down here and help us do it. Although the mother and child initiative before that, I was very deeply involved with, including doing the implementation plan for it with Tony, but then also being the Health and Human Services lead for it. But it was really the PEPFAR piece that got me into the public health versus the NIH clinical research, see how we could improve things, which had relevance for public health, but it wasn't directly involved. So many of the fastest growing populations in the world are in some of the poorest countries. And as you know, many of them have a high- Goes together, unfortunately. Right. And many of them have a very high HIV burden, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. And we know that the population is projected to double by 2050, potentially quadruple by the end of the century. And these countries are at a critical threshold. Either they're going to be able to harness the dynamism of this youth population, or they are going to face some very serious implications for health, for education, for even security. This population growth we know is referred to often as a youth boom or a youth bulge, but these trends can lead to a demographic dividend for these countries or potentially a disaster. And you've spoken quite passionately about this issue. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you see the implications of these demographic trends for global health. 
Well, they're pretty frightening right now. And as you know, those that doubling of the size of the population is with assumptions about decreased fertility rates. So it's all the more frightening because we are seeing declines in fertility rates in many of the countries, not fast enough. But if we were going to have greater fertility declines, then maybe this wouldn't be so bad. We definitely do need to work and support the countries on stronger fertility declines. But the impact on health is shocking. I mean, if you just look at HIV, the most at-risk people are young people. Not surprisingly, they're sexually active and they feel invincible and don't particularly feel like they need to worry about it. And because of the great success of HIV treatment, they don't see people dying. In the same way in the U.S. and Europe, we saw an upsurge in risk-taking as antiretroviral therapy came in, which is expected. So if you're going to double the size of the population, even if you decrease the infection rate by 50%, you're just treading water. You're just staying the same. And we've never had a 50% decline in infections, especially among young people, because young people don't seek health services in this country or anywhere else. Young people don't think they need health services. They're interested in jobs, education. Kids in Africa are interested in the same stuff our young people are. Jobs, education, access to the internet, social life. They're not particularly interested in HIV. We keep thinking we can build clinics and they'll come. They're not going to. They've made it very clear. The data are overwhelming that young people access services at about half the rate, get HIV tests about half the rate that 25 and overs do. So it's simple math, which Bill Gates has done, that shows that by 2030, we will have more infections in young people than we had at the peak of the epidemic. It's just, it's math, it's demographics. But it's not just HIV, it's all diseases, sexually transmitted diseases. And we're seeing a growth, even in poor countries, of diabetes and hypertension. And it's the same thing, health-seeking behavior or lack of. I mean, we have a problem in this country because young people don't learn not to drink sugar, not to smoking. We were doing pretty well on but you have to start that health-seeking behavior when you're young. You don't change them easily when you're exactly. older. Exactly. And some of those issues that you've been referring to, particularly in terms of the declines of fertility, the kinds of services that young people are interested in and where they would want to access them, how do you see the implications, particularly for adolescent girls and young women? Because we know in sub-Saharan Africa, they are particular risk of HIV, yeah. they are disproportionately affected, and that we're not going to get a handle on this HIV epidemic in many of these countries if we don't really address the needs of adolescent girls and young women, as well as young men and boys. But speak for a minute about how do we look at these issues of access to family planning and reproductive health, reaching young women where they want to be met and addressing their needs more effectively. We're recently learning that even girls who access Family planning services have obscenely high rates of HIV in sub-Saharan Africa. Through Speak a, a minute, perhaps, about the ECHO trial. Yeah. So the ECHO trial looked at HIV in the context of drugs that are given for reproductive health because there's been some question about interaction between them. Contraceptives. Contraceptives. There were some data related to that, but the shocking thing is that girls, adolescent girls and young women who are seeking health services, they're in reproductive health facilities, are going to access reproductive health contraceptives in South Africa have an HIV incidence, which means number of new infections a year, a percent of new infections a year, of six to eight. In Eswatini, which used to be Swaziland, about the same. Even in Zambia, which everyone thought was doing well, incredibly high. It, what it tells us is even young girls who are seeking health services are not actually interested in HIV because their HIV rates are appallingly high. It actually tells us a lot about how, at least I think, we have made 
a big error in how we pursue these diseases because we pursue them as diseases, which is not how people see them. Young people don't think about disease in the way public health people do. We keep thinking if we have a solution, they'll just do it. If we tell them to do it, they'll do it. People don't do that. You have to actually look at why people are vulnerable. And adolescent girls and young women are vulnerable in many places in the world, but in particular in southern, eastern, actually all of sub-Saharan Africa or all of Africa because of gender inequality and legal barriers to having a life, societal barriers, massive rates of violence and early pregnancy, child marriage, you know, just appalling inequality. So it's not just a health issue. It's an education issue. It's a behavioral societal issue. It's an access to income issue. I mean, we know that if adolescent girls and young women have an education, their fertility rate is automatically lower. It's the same in this country. We know that if they go to school and stay in school, their rates of HIV will drop dramatically. They have access to jobs past secondary school. Their fertility rate is better. Their ability to educate their kids, of course, is better. Their risk of HIV is lower. So these are societal, cultural issues. And so we are not going to solve any of those problems through a medical intervention. And what is really striking is when you go into those communities and talk with them, Community organizations, people in the village level or in the urban slum have ideas and are implementing solutions. I mean, there's almost none of these problems that some community has not solved, but we don't ever reach there because we stick with medicalization and we stick at above the area where the innovation is really happening, the delivery innovation is happening. Looking at this from a U.S. policy lens and taking into account this particularly fraught political environment right now where, frankly, attacks on women's reproductive rights and these issues of women's empowerment are seen as quite polarizing in many communities now. And you have U.S. assistance programs that target in silos many of these areas, some very medicalized, as you're describing, and some less so, some more trying to reach those communities, more looking at education for girls and ways to empower women and girls economically and looking at the range of family planning access issues and the range of methods that they should be able to choose from. So how do you look at this right now from a U.S. policy perspective? How do you bring together these U.S. funding streams and the initiatives that you're describing on the ground to move the dial in a new way, to be able to address young people at such risk as you're describing in a way that makes better use of U.S. assistance. So I'd say there are two components to that. One is the structural organizational pieces, which if you look at how PEPFAR was created, I think gives some insight. The second is, even if you did that, if you don't ensure funding for local organizations, and I don't say empowering the community because they're already very empowered. They're doing incredibly innovative and creative stuff, but to support and serve those communities so that their ideas become national policy and global policy, ultimately. You can do all the structural stuff right. If you don't get to the community organizations, it will still fail because you're not going to have the best ideas and the best approaches, and the people who need to be reached will not be reached. And by community, I don't mean rural. I mean local. It should and can be in the middle of a city, too. So from a U.S. perspective, we actually have a lot of good programs, but they're scattered. 
So we have programs that invest in economic gain and empowerment. We have education programs. We have health programs. But they're all over the place, and they don't come together. Now, I actually am very supportive of Ivanka's efforts, her Global Adolescent Girls and Young Women's Initiative, which I think is hopeful, but there's not a lot of resource there. And there's no health component. Well, there will be. I think there's going to be a health component over time. I can't imagine there's not going to be. I think the reason they're not putting health in it now is because we have such big health programs, but I think it alludes to what the problem is, which is we keep siloing things. So the three principles actually would include health if you looked at them, but because of the way the U.S. government has created, it's a mess. So the only way to do this, the only coherent way to do this is to bring those programs together in one approach with one strategic objective, which is how do you support an adolescent girl and young women? And Malawi actually did this at the presidential level, brought the ministers of health, finance, education, gender together. It's a good strategy, it's not a great strategy, but it's not implemented because no one knows how to implement it and funding streams are so siloed that you can't actually do it. So what you would need to do is something similar to what we did with PEPFAR, bringing all the agencies of the U.S. government together. It doesn't necessarily have to be in the State Department, doesn't necessarily have to have that kind of structure, but you need a person who is responsible to ensure that in countries the OPIC and the new investment fund, which is really how you invest in in Overseas economic growth. Investment corporation, yeah, yeah, but they're, they've created a new mechanism, Congress did, which is fantastic, to try to, to do better at it. So the Development Finance Corporation. Yes, the Development Finance Corporation. Although that's just getting started, it's a great idea because it's trying. It's doing the same thing. It's saying we were investing in too many different ways. Let's pull it all together and actually. But that's also trying business. to pull in a private sector piece. Yes, to all this. which is essential yeah. because if you don't have the private sector piece, you're not kind of economic growth and development. I mean, right. development money is never going to create the, the kind of economic opportunity that private sector engagement is going to ever, ever, ever. And they've structured it in a way that allows it's a whole bunch of technical stuff on first loss and other things that allow that to be much more effective. And I would say that's where China's kicking our butts around the block because that's where if we can't do that piece better, we will lose to China. But then there you have the education programs in USAID, you have health programs in USAID, you have health programs in CDC, you have health programs in PEPFAR, you have Treasury that actually does some work on helping countries restructure their tax issues. You have legal issues related to trafficking in persons and other things that are in scattered in different places. These all have to come together to have uh, strategies for countries from the U.S. government supporting the countries because we're never going to have enough resource or power or, or the authority to drive country change, but to have a strategy and the Millennium Challenge Corporation across all those sectors for an adolescent girl and young woman policy or an adolescent girl and young woman strategy and to support the countries across those sectors with indicators, with measurement, just like we did with PEPFAR to show whether or not we're improving. It's going to involve boys, too. No country is going to just go do stuff for girls. It's not politically possible, nor is it the right thing to do, because it's the older men that were missed as younger boys who wind up having the terrible approaches to women and abuse them. So you have to change the whole structure. We could be organized in a way that would actually allow for all that to happen, 
if we had the congressional authority and the administration's interest in doing that, which I think there is. It's just getting it done. But in this environment, do you think you could get the kind of buy-in that you would need to have this sort of strategy that, frankly, would include these issues of women's health and family planning and services for adolescent girls. So, There's yeah, been a lot of political pushback on that. I absolutely agree it's possible because we heard the same thing that it wasn't possible when PEPFAR was created. You couldn't possibly deal with issues related to young people. You have to compromise. I think the question is, will everyone compromise? And everyone, it's not just the right, it's the left that needs to compromise. So you think that in this atmosphere that Republicans would get on board to a strategy that would be including all the elements that you're describing? Yes, yes. Family planning has never been an issue for the vast majority of Republicans. Abortion is an issue. If you want to include abortion services, forget it. It's done. There's zero chance. But the broader issue of access to family planning and range of contraceptive methods and all that, including for adolescent girls, you think is a viable way forward? Absolutely. Well, that would be really important I'm to not, see. I think it's very viable. It really depends on how it's approached what we're willing to do. And there are some areas we might not be able to do. I mean, the U.S. government's not responsible for everything. There are other people that can do pieces. I mean, there are plenty of other development agencies, the countries themselves. There are plenty of other partners that are out there that can participate, too. It can't just be the U.S. government, but that the U.S. government could get its act together on this. It could be a driver for significant change. If we're thinking about sort of a new strategy, and potentially new ways to incentivize USAID missions on the ground to really pull these funding streams together. How do you think we could operationalize that? What are the next steps? Well, actually, first of all, I see mission directors, and this is certainly Mark Green's objective to pull this stuff together, And because he was an ambassador. He saw what happened in, when he was in Tanzania. He actually did some pretty impressive stuff to try to pull all the different pieces of the U.S. government together. It's actually not the mission directors, it's the structure of the system, the way budget lines flow. The Senate has tried to put language in on this, and the House has some, and it's going to have to come from congressional authority, or at least clarity that Congress wants to see these budget lines come together. You can still report against the budget lines in a coherent way, but as long as there's clear indication from the administration and from Congress that this is expected. You're not going to do it everywhere. So take five countries, 10 countries, and see how it works. And not all of the U.S. institutions we've talked about are active everywhere. There's a relatively small world where they all have relatively large portfolios. Start there and see what can be done. And we have to do this because it's the right thing to do, but we are losing badly to China badly, especially in Africa, and the Africans would rather work with us. But we're not giving them a coherent package. We give them pieces. It has to be a package. And it's never going to work for an adolescent girl or an adolescent boy if it's not a package, because they're not going to go to a health program. So is there any program that you've seen that really addresses in a more effective way the needs expressed by young people on the ground, boys and girls? Young yes. men and young women. Yes, I've what, seen what would great that program? So, what, describe to us a little bit about what that looks like, so that we can begin to imagine what we want to see scaled up. It depends on where you are. So, if you're in one of the township slum areas outside of Cape Town, there are some great programs based in schools, but they bring in 
all the different aspects. So kids in school are very interested in doing better in school and having better access to internet and sports. Sports a big deal for kids, especially football there. Job training as well as formal education. Interesting economic and, empowerment yeah, programs for yeah. girls that link with all that. And they exist that do that. They also want spaces by themselves. For example, they're pretty honest. And safe I'm, spaces. I'm never going to that clinic ever. It's all adults. I'm never going to go there under any circumstances. But we keep building them hoping that they're going to show up. Exactly. So the way to do this, to be honest, and where I've seen it done well, is not for us to come up with those answers. It's to go and ask them. And it's very different depending on which community you are. Are you in school or out of school? Are you rural or urban? What's the faith community or traditional community like in this area? Who are the major power brokers? Who are the partners? We're doing some of this work in a couple of places. Just within this country of Iswatini, that's 1.3 million people, you know, you go from one community to another and how you do it is completely different. We keep doing this. We will not come up with the answers here. The answers have to be there. They will tell us, and they'll, they'll vote with their feet. So the only programs I've seen work use what is effectively now called human-centered design, and everyone's rebranding the same garbage we've been doing for 20 years as human-centered design now because it's in phrase. But true human-centered design is a discipline. It's a format that the private sector has used to sell us stuff for <laughs> 50 years. But if you go into communities and listen to them, not tell them, listen to them, they'll actually start telling you how to fix and structure your programs. And we don't do this. And you think the U.S. is capable of doing that and yes. that with the appropriate congressional language and... And the right partners. And yes, we're perfectly capable. We do extraordinary things. We're perfectly capable of it. Do you see this as something that would be a broader youth strategy, or is it more an adolescent girl, young women strategy? I think it would have to be a youth strategy, but that will have a massive impact on adolescent girls and young women if that's a clear component of it, that changing the dynamic. But if you just do adolescent girls and young women, you actually take a risk that it's going to get worse for them because the boys might get really angry and the power structures are male. You have to change the context you've got to, you've got and to. their opportunities yeah. and what they see as their future. Just think about it in this country. My experience of young people is they don't see gender, race, or sexual orientation because they're all together. They function in a different way. If you separate people, you start separating people and bringing people together. It's really a youth approach. What do we do for you? And not only are we capable, but that's what the Africans, for example, want. That's what the countries want because they see this massive opportunity because we keep looking at young people as a problem. They're not a problem, actually. They're a massive opportunity if we invest in the right way and if people are given the opportunity in the right way. And that is how we're going to solve all of our problems. The solutions to climate change, the solutions to pollution, the solutions to the next version of technology, they're all down there. And it's not just in the U.S. and Europe. The energy and talent and creativity in these other places, if we lose all of them, we can't solve our problems. And what worries me the most today is if you look 20 years ago, we had for about 12 years a sense of solidarity, a sense that if we worked together, we could strengthen and gave opportunity to every young person, we could solve any problem, we could change the world. Now we're kind of going backwards and saying, well, now we're on our own and we can do more for ourselves, by ourselves. That's garbage. It is never in the history of the world worked, ever. It never will. 
We can only solve problems when we try together, when people have opportunity to grow, to be educated, to put their ideas forward. And technology gives us the opportunity to leapfrog and solve problems even faster, but it will never work if we're going back into ourselves and being afraid and looking internally. It's never going to work. You've spoken eloquently about this choice between a demographic dividend or a disaster. What does that look like? What are the options here? The options are we have a world where young people all over the world, no matter where they live, have the opportunity to put their ideas and innovations and creativity forward because they have access to education, health, economic opportunity, which is why the new development fund is so important because if we separate the private sector from this, it will never work. Economic growth is essential to all of this, but it has to be equitable economic growth. And you have equity when everyone has the opportunity to move forward, but then you have a safety net too. That world is very much within our reach. The option is we head in the direction we seem to be going, and not just in this country, but around the world. And thank God for Congress, because they keep batting stuff back, that we start looking inward and with fear rather than outward with hope, which is what we've done for the last 12 years. And we don't work together, and we separate, and we don't solve problems. We create problems, and we point fingers at each other. And if the population of Africa doubles in the next 20 years without economic growth, opportunity, education, health, if you're worried about migration or refugees today, what do you think the world's going to look like when you have a billion poor, uneducated, what does that look like to any rational person? Not just from a refugee immigration standpoint, but from a peace and security standpoint. ISIS would love a world like that. We will have a world filled with ISIS in that circumstance, and we will have massive migration and refugees. Why would you pick that future when you can pick a hopeful, optimistic future That will cost a fraction of what it's going to cost to try to deal with the mess we're going to create if we don't invest today. And by the way, those countries, when they are economically stronger and they are growing all the time, they become a great marketplace for us. That's where we'll sell our goods and services if they like us, or they're going to sell them and buy stuff from China because China's filling the void we're creating. And I don't think people understand that. We are creating a massive void that China is filling happily. And to be clear, as we've discussed before, this isn't about population control. This is about giving women and families and communities access to the tools they need to decide how many children they want to have, when and if they want to have them. It's not about limiting the number of people in a certain no, part of the world. No, in the same way, you know, we don't have population control in this country or in Europe. But as we talked about, we know that educated women with economic opportunity will have fewer children. And they have fewer children for two reasons. One, they don't have to have more children for them all to survive because they can actually pay for their nutrition and health care and education. But then families get to look and say, how much resource do I have? Is the family size for us? What is our decision on that? Who can we feed? That's how every country in the world has been. Why would it be different there? This is not about population control or setting numbers. It's about giving people their opportunity and giving them the decision-making authority to say, I'm not going to have 10 kids so five survive. Exactly. I'm going to have 
a healthy, happy, productive family. But that only happens with health education and economic opportunity. Right. And as we know, despite all the polemics in Washington, the U.S. has been the global leader on international family planning for decades. And it is a critical cornerstone. With strong bipartisan support. Exactly. Well, listen, thank you so much. It's fascinating to hear your thoughts on this. We could talk for a lot longer. But these are critical issues that really don't get pulled together as often and as strongly as they need to. So we really appreciate your input on this and look forward to future conversations. And thanks for the work you're all doing here at CSIS Advances. We can solve these problems or we can create them. That's our choice. And thank you for joining us for the Take Is Directed podcast. As always, we invite you to subscribe to Take Is Directed so you never miss our latest episode. For more information on our upcoming events and recent publications, visit the CSIS.org Global Health Policy Center program page.